0: And I, uh, so, thank you all for coming. Very, uh, thank you very much for coming. And we'll be using the microphones as um, the session will be recorded. So, hopefully, we won't blast you out with uh, with our voices this afternoon. Um. I think, uh, Lori and I were talking beforehand, I think we want to keep this very informal and conversational. So um, we'll probably remain seated up here and and have a a person-to-person dialogue. Um, If you have any uh, issues um, hearing us, which you shouldn't with the microphone, please let me know and we'll be glad to to try to stand up or move around or do whatever is is most conducive. Um, We're very glad to be here to talk a little bit about student life at the university and the, the challenges and the opportunities that are associated with that. Um, it's uh, it's been an exciting year this year. Um, we have a lot of um, new uh, initiatives to share with you and to talk with you about. And we want to leave some time at the end for you to be able to answer que- or ask questions that we might be able to to answer for you. And again, have a little bit more of a dialogue. So with that, Lori, do you have the clicker? I'm going to jump us into our our introduction here. Um, a little bit about the Office of the Dean of Students, um, where Lori and I have the the privilege to work. Our, the core of our mission is to support student learning and interpersonal growth to create engaged citizen leaders. And leadership is a, is a huge part of what we do. Um, engaged citizen leaders, if you know the mission of the University of Virginia, it's prevalent in that that mission statement as well. What we do in the Dean of Students office is really work with the student experience outside the classroom. So their, their lives... Um, Um, in a non-academic fashion, although we do, and I know Lori does do some academic advising uh, with a number of students, but we are concerned with their experience by and large outside the classroom and their co-curricular activities, extracurricular activities, and at times when students run into a little bit of trouble um, in terms of a conduct issue or a behavioral issue or need some support in terms of a mental health issue, and we partner very closely with our colleagues at CAPS, which is our counseling center, in those sorts of situations. Laurie's going to talk more about uh, student safety a little bit later. We, we mentioned the core functions up there as well. Those core functions, student behavior, student involvement, student climate, residential life, and health and wellness, represent the core aspects of what the Student Affairs Division focuses on on a day-to-day basis. Um, as a part of the, the Student Affairs Division, the Dean of Students Office also concerns itself very closely with these five core areas. Um, and we do encompass them all. We do touch all of them in some form or fashion. And I think you'll see that as, as the, the day uh, plays out um, during our presentation. So there are two aspects that we wanna focus on today, student safety and student activities. We're gonna start with uh, student activities. And there are really uh, five pieces of that that I wanna talk with you about today. And I'll, I'll go into a little bit of detail on each of them and then leave time for you to, to ask a couple questions. The first is our, is our after hours uh, initiative. Um, is everybody familiar? If you've been following uh, along some events at the university or the past couple of years, has anybody heard um, the priority late night programming or after hours at the university? I'm just curious. It's gotten a little bit of, okay, I see one hand. It's gotten a little bit of attention, some positive attention, which we're really excited about. So over the past uh, couple of years, what we have really tried to help our students focus on our activities and social opportunities that don't involve alcohol, um, that are alternatives to the corner, some of the bars and restaurants on the corner, that are alternatives to, if a student should should select them, alternatives to Rugby Road, um, and some of the more what's considered traditional alcohol-centric activities. So, in partnering with a number of our student leaders, um, most notably our University Programs Council, UPC for short, um, which is the sort of successor organization to what used to be known as University Union, Um, The UPC student leaders really drove a lot of this initiative and created a number of great ideas for us to focus on late night programming. The goal in all this is to really facilitate a strong portfolio, a robust portfolio of uh, entertainment, safe uh, and entertaining social opportunities from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. That's been our target on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night. We know that those times tend to be Popular social times, no surprise, uh, on any college campus, and our grounds are no exception. Um, so we really wanted to focus on those three nights and provide alternatives to what are otherwise tend to be alcohol centric activities. There are three key elements of those uh, of our of our focus: um, student programming. So what the what of what we're actually doing? The facilities, which provides the infrastructure to support those programs. And then the all-important food, which at the end of the day is really what draws students to a lot of activities. What kind of food is being served and how much. Um, So, in thinking about programming, and this is where UPC really stepped in and did some fantastic work. Last summer, um, a steering committee was formed um, to look at what we have been doing over the past couple of years and what we could be doing and what we should be doing. And UPC developed this notion of after hours, sort of a cool little slogan, cool little name that they could use to sort of market and brand this concept of late night activity. So after hours was born, and they started to focus on what could we do? What are some of the the activities that students will want to come to? And they piloted a number of those activities over the the course of the past year. And I have a couple of um, uh, metrics up here to show you. So from the 2015-2016 academic year, there were 72 after-hours events, again, defined by 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. Thursday, Friday, and Saturday nights. So 72 over the course of the year. The average number of events per weekend was three. Perhaps not surprising, because we focused on those three particular nights. Um, We didn't always do all three nights, but most of the time it was at least two. The average number of attendees per event was 105, and we felt that that was a pretty good start. Uh, Some of the the bigger activities, the more popular activities, um, had as many as uh, 750, 800 attendees. Um, That's really what we're striving for, that's really what we're focusing on. And we were happy to note that the highest attended nights were the nights that we really, really, really wanted to have that attendance because they were what we considered to be on high-risk nights. So, for example, Halloween, um, the Friday night football game that we had this year. Um, The uh, last home football game, which some of you may know uh, coincides with the fourth-year-fifth tradition. And we've been trying for a long time with a number of partners around the university to tackle that particular issue and confront that issue. The fourth-year-fifth, if you're not familiar with it, is um, a... uh, sort of a student self-created idea that they have to consume a fifth of of liquor uh, um, on the the day of the last home football game, which is an incredibly, incredibly dangerous uh, proposition. Um, So uh, on that particular night, there is great focus and great emphasis on how can we provide safe, fun, alternative activities for students to make different choices, better choices, and have different and better options than uh, some alcohol-centric ones? So we were very pleased to, to note that on those particular nights, we had the greatest attendance at those activities. So the student leaders of UPC really felt successful in that. They declared success on those nights, um, but the, the um, effort continues uh, into the next year. So how can we continue to expand this notion? So it's not just programming, there's also facilities, so we create formal facilities, formal opportunities, or formal programs for people to attend, but then we also want to create landing space, so some students have this idea, understandable, that look, I don't, want to, I don't want to necessarily go to something that's been set up for me or programmed for me, I just want to go hang out, I want to have this landing space where I can go, I can hang out with my friends, I can grab something to eat, I can study. I can just hang out, you know, I don't have to, it doesn't have to be a concert, it doesn't have to be a comedian, it doesn't have to be you know, a step show, it's just a place for me to go hang out. So to that end, we created some space or made some space available, primarily in Newcomb Hall, our first floor concourse, our theater and theater lobby, um, as well as the game room. There's a game room uh, with uh, pool, video games, so on and so forth, board games. So we wanted to make that available for students just to go hang out. And by and large, our metrics were pretty solid in terms of students who are making, uh, taking advantage of that. Now, I will say that the numbers were lower than we would have wanted. They were solid, but there's an opportunity for us to expand those numbers in the coming year. And we're trying to explore with students what would draw them to more of that landing space. Is it the types of, of games, and, and you know, whether it's video games, arcade games, board games, whatever? Is it the selection that would draw them out? Is it the location? Is it the food offering? So we're continuing to explore that. We have a big facility opportunity that I'll share more with you in a moment. We're going to be opening a new facility. The last piece of this is food. It's really self-evident. I don't have to talk much more about that. Um, but we did make some late-night opportunities available. In partnership with our wonderful colleagues in dining, um, we made uh, one, at least one of the restaurants in the pavilion, in um, the PAV, as the students call it, in Newcomb Hall, open Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night. So typically it tended to be, I believe Subway was open uh, till 2 a.m. Um, on Thursday, Chick-fil-A on Friday, and then we eventually moved to a model where on Saturday um, dining provided uh, theater concessions for free to the students. They had a student budget, um, so when a, the, the UPC was showing a movie in our outstanding theater in Newcomb, the, the concessions would all be free. And there were pretty substantial concessions for students to be able to go and, and eat. That was very, very, very popular. Um, The sales were not as high as I think uh, uh, dining would have preferred, so we're exploring some different options there. One of those options is to have food trucks available late at night out in the Monroe Plaza in the areas adjacent to Newcomb. So we think that students having more selection may generate more attention and more focus on coming and hanging out in those facilities. So, again, the, the spirit of this is to provide some alternatives for students that's fun, that they want to go to, that they want to hang out to, they, where they want to hang out with their friends, and not feel like, oh my gosh, the only option is to stay in my dorm room or stay in my apartment or go over to the corner and go to the bars. We want to provide them other opportunities uh, as well. So, that's after hours. Um, the second uh, idea or the second initiative I'll talk about is the Lloyd Building. Um, that's gotten a little bit of press lately as well. Um, the building that we're, we're going to be opening soon used to be the old student bookstore on the corner. Um, and you may be familiar with that if, you're, if you uh, were here when it was a student bookstore. It's had a number of iterations over the years. Um, but we're excited about this opportunity and there's, there's a picture of it right there. Um, the purpose of this facility is to create a new, essentially, student center that complements the portfolio spaces that we already have. And it is going to fit squarely into our after-hours initiative because it will be this non-alcohol oasis, if you will, on the corner where students can go and there'll be the plan is to have concerts and bands come and perform and speakers and um, musicians and comedians and you name it. The UPC is really looking at this as kind of the jackpot of, of not only location, but putting in state-of-the-art facilities there to create some pretty cool programs. Um, The design of this building, like most things at the University of Virginia, as we want it to be, was driven by students. So last summer, the Meriwether Lewis Fellows, uh, it's a group of students who apply and are selected to be part of this program, are given a challenge, or given a project. And they're given the summer um, to work with faculty, uh, to work among themselves, to work with various stakeholders around the university, to develop uh, a solution to this project, to this problem, or this opportunity. So they were essentially given the Lloyd Building last year. They were handed the Lloyd Building and and told, what would you ask, what would you do with this? What would you, how would you change this? How would you shape this? How would you develop this? And they came up with some outstanding suggestions. And I'm working with the Meriwether Lewis Fellows uh, this summer as well on a different project, but some of the, the alums of that program have come back from last year, to speak to their successors, and the alums are actually fourth years this year. And they are amazed at how much this building has taken shape according to their their design parameters and and specifications. So it has been student-driven from day one. We're we're thrilled to be looking to launch it uh, next fall semester, and I define semester liberally as in anywhere between August and December. So it it much depends on the construction uh, timeline and how that unfolds. The key priorities for the Lloyd Building, um, one, I've already talked about, late night event space, programming space. Uh, Equally important to that, we want it to be an inclusive space. We want it to be a space where all university students feel welcome to come, to hang out, uh, to enjoy one another's company, and have good conversations. Uh, we also recognize that it is on the corner. It is it is uh, part of the Charlottesville community as much as it is the university community. So there are conversations around how do we make this space not only inclusive for students, but how does it fit into the larger Charlottesville context within the corner, with the realm of the corner as well. So we're, we're having those conversations. Um, I think that it is going to be an outstanding addition not only to the corner area but to the University of Virginia as well. Um, we also want it to be a meeting space. So we hear over and over and over again from students, rightly so, that there are not a lot of meeting spaces on grounds. Well, I should rephrase that. There are a lot of meeting spaces on grounds, but the number of student organizations, and indeed the number of students, is increasing. Uh, we, have, we are now approaching 700 student organizations on grounds. Um, we're just shy of 700, actually. Uh, and we have 62, as of yesterday, we have 62 Greek letter organizations. Uh, we have ten special status organizations um, and four or five agency organizations. We've got a lot of student groups that need a lot of meeting space. So space is a, is a challenge. It's a perennial challenge. This will provide more space and for, for people to meet uh, not only for social but for some co-curricular activities as well, with the good work that a lot of these organizations are doing. So let me walk you through each of the three levels very quickly to let you know what they're going to look like, and I've included some of the floor plans. My caveat on this, though, is that we're still finalizing a lot of this, so don't take this to the bank because there could be some tweaks uh, as the the committee continues to work through this and develop this. What I have up there first is the lower level uh, of the building, the basement level, if you will. That, by and large, is going to be an unscheduled open space. And it's essentially going to be a game room space. So we're going to put pool tables, air hockey, foosball. Um, we want to put uh, arcade games, sort of old school arcade games, which are re- students really love. They're kind of coming back. Um, video games, a variety of different uh, uh, opportunities down there for people just to go to there and hang out. Um, we very likely will have a meeting room, like you see on the right there, that will probably be a meeting room or an cappella rehearsal space. We hear from a lot of our performance groups that they need more space to rehearse and then ultimately to perform and do their shows. So we want to make, since this is going to be a a sort of boisterous space, we want to create a room down there that will have some soundproof protection, um, but will allow a cappella groups in particular to be able to rehearse. Uh, We also think it could potentially be entertaining for people that are hanging out down there to have an a cappella group rehearsing in the next room, um, and potentially the a cappella group to come out and and mingle and and to sing, and we, we know that there's some interest in that from some of those groups. Um, So this is sort of a rough floor plan. You see some of the games and the setup of of what that might look like. We really want it to be kind of a sports lounge type of environment. Again, largely unscheduled so that students will be able to come in and hang out all the time. We envision the building probably being open and thus this lower level being available um, from about 9 a.m. to 3 a.m. every day, seven days a week. So we want it'll be obviously open more than it's closed, and it's a place any night of the week that students will be able to go hang out very late and, and have fun or grab a table and do some reading. That's the lower level. The first floor is um, really going to be a programming type space. It, well, it's going to be both programming and both hangout space, and let me explain. So you'll see over here on the right, um, that, sort of that, that sort of semicircle, if you will, that's against the corner, that's going to be a stage. And it's going to be actually a fairly sizable stage. It's enough to, to fit a band um, to, for either you know, performances or if there's a dance or a formal or something along those lines. So there's, a, there's enough space there for a pretty sizable band to go in there. Um, there'll be a number of tables around, comfortable chairs, couches, sort of, again, kind of coffee shop type space. In fact, um, if any of you um, are familiar with Crozet uh, near, near here, Um, the Mud House in Crozet was one of the early models for this particular area. Um, We looked at um, the Mud House. We looked at some other places around more locally here on the corner. Uh, A lot of students went out and took pictures of some of their favorite hangouts. Um, They went to other universities and took pictures as well, University of Richmond, William & Mary, uh, Virginia Tech, and they came back with those pictures and said, hey, this is something that we could do with this. So performance space, hangout space. We're also going to put... Um, a food service space on this level as well. And what the students have, have really settled on, since we don't really want to compete with the other businesses on the corner, and they, they have a pretty good sort of market on the food that they serve and, and what they do, and the students like that. So we don't want to try to compete with that or copy that. So we're going to make this a, a dessert bar, essentially. Um, Bar not to be confused with alcohol. Um, It's going to be a a dessert space where students can come in, purchase gourmet desserts. It will probably be open only in the evening or at night, but it's carving out a niche that doesn't currently exist on the corner. And a couple of models of that, the students went out and found themselves. There's a place in Richmond, I think, that focuses on desserts, uh, really sort of high-quality gourmet desserts. So we think this is going to be really cool and you know something that the students will be able to really be excited about. And again, the students came up with this idea, and it's what they want to see. The beauty of this, though, and about this whole building, not just the food service part, is we want to make it um, flexible. So as tastes change, I guess pun intended, um, as interests change, as, as styles change, we want this building to change with it so that it's not sort of everything is fixed and, and it has to be what it has to be. If in a year or two, the students say, no, dessert isn't our thing anymore, we want to make it something else, well, we can flip it you know, into something else. So dining at uh, Aramark is partnering with us uh, for uh, that particular uh, cafe, that that restaurant, that food service location, if you will. They've been great partners, continue to be great partners. So we're exploring how we can, can really go to town with that. Um, the second floor, I think that's the, the biggest part of the first floor. The second floor is going to be more of this meeting space. So there are going to be a lot more sort of divided rooms, uh, rooms that can accommodate 10 to 12, 15 people to meet. There'll be technology in those spaces, screens, um, dry erase boards, things like that. We're still finalizing exactly what the students want with that space. But that's where groups will be able to meet. Clubs will be able to have their meetings. Project groups can meet. Groups can rehearse. There'll be rehearsal spaces up there. And then on the front, so over there to your right, um, my left, um, the front room, which has windows that overlook um, the street and the university, it's, it's actually a, a beautiful view of, of grounds from that particular space. That's going to be a multi-purpose room. Um, it could be used for yoga. It could be used for reception it, receptions. It could be used for dance rehearsals, modern dance, classical dance. Uh, we want to set it up, and we're actually going to put mirrors in there, too, to accommodate uh, the dancing groups and, and their needs. So that's really going to be a true uh, multi-purpose space that adds to the portfolio of, of such spaces around grounds. So really excited about that. The last thing I'll mention about this particular level, there'll be a uh, branch of career services that will be located there. So... You may know that um, the University Career Center has sort of reorganized itself into different career communities that focus on different interests uh, and different industries that students are seeking jobs in. One of those industries is arts-based. So the thought is right now, again, nothing concrete, but very likely to happen, the arts-based career community will be housed here on the upper level. And, of course, during the day, they'll have office space and be open for advising students and supporting students. But at night, much of their space will flip to be available for students to come in and use and, again, hang out, meet, so on and so forth. So really getting uh, the the most uh, advantage out of this space as we possibly can. And I think it's going to be really good. It's going to be exciting. Um, so, moving past uh, the Lloyd Building into the Multicultural Center, uh, and Laurie's going to talk more about sort of the programming aspects and the philosophy of the Multicultural Center in a moment. I'm going to talk more about the facility piece of that. Um, there's been a, a strong student initiative in partnership with, uh, with us um, and with others around Grounds to create a Multicultural Center space. Um, we've been working with the student group to figure out where is the best location for that center the size, um, where, you know, should it house professional staff, should it just be a meeting space, and so on. Well, what we've settled on, again, with all the key players, is to take the part of the lower level of Newcomb Hall, right, so Newcomb really kind of being in the heart, in the center of grounds, great location, and turning part of that lower level into the center, that would house professional staff, dean of students professional staff, as well as potentially student staff like graduate assistants and undergraduates where they can come and hang out and, and have meetings and engage in discourse and so on. So what we did is we took the old Cavalier daily office and the Cavalier Daily has been extremely supportive. They were, they were looking at their own space needs and what they didn't need anymore, what they did need. So we actually had a true convergence of circumstances, that um, a happy convergence of circumstances where we were able to meet everybody's needs. And, you know, right? how often in the world do you actually get to make everybody happy at the same time? This is one of those rare opportunities. So what we did is we took um, the Cavalier Daily office, and we're going to transform that into the multicultural center. And the Cavalier Daily is going to move literally across the hall on the lower level and occupy half of what was our Media Activity Center. So the Media Activity Center had a huge footprint. That huge footprint really wasn't necessary, and we learned that over the years. So we're dividing that in half. Half of it will still be the Media Activity Center. The other half will be the Cavalier Daily office. So that's what's happening this summer. We're renovating that space. We're targeting... um, early August for the move-in for the Multicultural Center and for the transition over the Cavalier Daily. So we will have a new Multicultural Center uh, on Central Grounds uh, come start of the fall semester, to really excited about. Um, The last two things I want to mention quickly, and and then we can, uh, uh, Lori can, can jump in. I want to talk about our Fraternal Organization Agreement. So I'm going to shift from student activities and some of our new space opportunities to our fraternal organizations. And I know that over the past year or two, a lot of people have had questions around some of the, the changes that have happened with Greek letter organizations, um, both in terms of their social activities and in terms of their governance and how they govern themselves. Well, last year, um, in the, uh, as we were working through uh, the, the challenge of um, the Rolling Stone uh, situation, uh, we were engaging with Greek leaders And the Greek leaders, uh, particularly the IFC, the Interfraternity Council, developed a series of proposals. And they they came to us with some proposals about how they would uh, create some new and revised safety protocols for their uh, social events in their houses. And this primarily concerns housed Greek letter organizations, those that that have actual facilities where students uh, live and host uh, social activities. Last year was the first iteration of these new, of these new policies. Uh, actually, th- this past year was, the first year was the first full year of those policies. The spring of 2015 was actually when they went into effect. Uh, and they were modified over the past year. Um, by and large, it's been quite successful. Uh, and this is an yet another example of the power of student self-governance in creating these, these opportunities and creating these changes for the better to make activities safer. Uh, and to make them, in some, in some respects, um, as the IFC's been focusing on more recently, to make them more inclusive as well. So the highlight of those changes, just to kind of brief you on those and update you on those, um, the IFC has delineated their social events among two tiers. There are two tiers of social activities. Tier 1 tend to be the bigger events. Um, they go past 9 p.m. for a Tier 1 event. It's classified as Tier 1 if it goes after midnight. Um, If uh, there are more than 150 guests, including brothers of the chapter, that are attending, it's classified as a a Tier 1 event. Um, At a Tier 1 event, there must be at least three sober brothers uh, present who are monitoring the situation and monitoring and providing assistance to anybody who needs it. Um, There also must be an additional sober brother for every 40 members of the chapter. Um, that's a non-negotiable from the IFC's perspective. All of their, their chapters that are part of the IFC must abide by these regulations. Tier 2 ev- events tend to be smaller. Um, they tend to be classified as events that run past 9 p.m. They don't necessarily have to run after midnight, um, and it's where there are at least as many guests as there are brothers uh, in attendance. Um, uh, a highlight of another highlight of the change in in policies from the IFC pers- from the IFC's perspective is the elimination of common source alcohol so no more common source alcohol no more of the the, the the big bins full of punch um, no more kegs those have been eliminated um, all alcohol um, beer must be served in an unopened container and uh, the individual must observe the or has the opportunity to observe the alcohol of the beer being opened and, and served um, so that is a very strict regulation that the IFC uh, has adopted and uh, they did so actually very eagerly and very willingly in realizing it was time to do that not every chapter was excited about that initially, Um, but um, kudos to the IFC leadership in really driving that home uh, and making sure that that's that's happening. Um, Hard liquor uh, is also tightly, tightly regulated at a Tier 2 event. Um, It must be brought to a uh, central source that is um, overseen by a sober brother, and that sober brother monitors uh, the serving of that. Um, For Tier 1 events, Hard liquor is completely banned uh, unless it is served by a third-party bartender uh, who is under the employ of a Virginia ABC licensed establishment. Uh, So, hard liquor has been uh, tightly regulated in that regard as well. Yes, they are. They are supposed to be doing that. Um, And part of the part of the fraternal organization agreement, the FOA, states that they must abide by state law with respect to alcohol consumption. And of course. State law requires um, that alcohol not be served to anyone under the age of 21. Uh, So part of the Fraternal Organization Agreement specifically states that they have to abide by not just state law, but it's federal, state, and and local law. Absolutely. Um, The last thing I'll I'll reference is that all of their social events must be registered with the IFC uh, ahead of time. Um, and they must also have guest lists. So for Tier 2 events, they have to have a guest list that a sober brother tour will monitor at the door, and only individuals on that guest list are allowed into the social event. Uh, for Tier 1 events, um, they must have a third-party security uh, firm that manages uh, that, that entry point and that is present for the evening. And the IFC has worked with a number of local companies to to employ and retain the services of those companies to provide that security service uh, at their events. Many events, as you might expect, are the bigger ones. And so the the Tier 1 events where you have security, third-party security, actually managing uh, the the entry points and and the safety at that particular location. Um, Transitioning to my last uh, point, which is uh, hazing prevention and adjudication. Um, Hazing, as we know, is a a national issue. Uh, It's a very serious national issue. We all read in the headlines um, a couple of times a year that someone has been injured or has died uh, as a result of of hazing behavior uh, on a college campus. So it's something we take extremely seriously as well as uh, our colleagues across the country. The University of Virginia actually joined a couple of years ago a national hazing consortium that's based out of the University of Maine and that's allowed us to um, have access to research and conduct research here around best practices in hazing prevention and also understanding the different aspects and facets of hazing behavior. So we've really been able to avail ourselves of this research that's been available through the consortium and to leverage the expertise and the resources as we go about our own hazing prevention efforts. Um, We're about ready to launch this next fall uh, a new hazing prevention program that will be available for greek letter organizations as well as uh, um, cios uh, other student organizations uh, athletic teams and and so on Um, this is a program that has been tailored specifically to the university of virginia it's been in refinement and has been piloted with a couple of different groups this past spring so we're excited about being able to launch that and track data about the impact that this is, is actually having. So, right, we want to be metrics-driven, we want to be data-driven to actually see if we're moving the needle uh, in, in a positive way. We also have a very robust uh, hazing investigation and adjudication process. Um, Lori and I both have, have been involved in a number of hazing investigations over the past uh, couple of years. Um, we approach those, um, obviously, we take them, any allegation of hazing extremely, extremely seriously. And we employ a process where we engage um, all of the involved parties or parties who may have some knowledge of the situation. We also, according to state law, in, in some specific circumstances, must notify the Commonwealth's attorney for the appropriate jurisdiction, which we, of course, always, always do. Um, The University of Virginia, it's kind of an interesting situation. Uh, We really have two jurisdictions, two commonwealth's attorney that, depending on where the alleged incident happened, we would have to notify that person. Most of university grounds actually sits on county land, so we work with a county commonwealth's attorney. But many of our um, uh, Greek letter organizations, their houses, as well as the area immediately surrounding the university, is actually city jurisdiction. So, you know, it depends on where something may have happened as to who we engage from the law enforcement side and from the Commonwealth's attorney side. We work very closely with both Commonwealth's attorney to figure out what's the best working process for us and for them, as well as the appropriate um, police jurisdiction as well. So, a lot of work is underway around not only how do we prevent hazing and educate and prevent students um, from engaging in, in such behavior, but also how do we remedy it? How do we uh, hold students accountable for it when it does happen? And above all else, how do we keep students safe uh, and, and make sure that they're making good decisions? So, I'll pause there and turn it over to Lori for her next part.
1: So, as
0: yes. Okay, so sure. So the question basically is, what alternatives do organizations have um, to what could be considered hazing behavior? Um, Well, there are a ton, uh, actually. And part of the the education process is to help them understand what those alternatives are. Um, And we we work with them. We work with, in some cases, their advisor. Um, If they have an advisor, we work with their national organization. Most Greek letter organizations have a national template, blueprint, if you will, around new member education. They have a blueprint that's been vetted um, for safety, that's been vetted for effectiveness, that's been assessed for effectiveness. So, there there are options there that are tailored to individual organizations. Now. I mean, I could I could tick off a couple of different opportunities that are classic team building um, um, opportunities. Um, some of you you know know about those. There, I mean, everything from from ropes courses to adventure games and, and so on that are are data data um, driven in terms of effectiveness. Like we know we know that they work. Um, that's why many companies and, and corporations uh, employ those opportunities. But but I'll go back to those national blueprints. I'll go back to those national plans, new member education plans, which chapters, well, not chapters, but the national organization has developed for their chapters to employ. So we point, when, when students come to us, and they do come to us, chapter presidents will come to us and say, here's what we're thinking of doing. And increasingly, we've been, we've been happy to see more of them do that. Some some don't. Um, some don't avail themselves of, of advising and support in that regard. But we'll look at that and say, yeah, this... This kind of dances on the line of hazing, you know, and, and there, there are risks associated with that. And then there are some behaviors that are completely, so obviously hazing that, you know, it, it's, it's self-evident. Um, but within what we do is we talk them through what they want to do, what they want to hope to accomplish. And again, we, we refer them and engage, we engage with our national organizations as well and try to point them back to those blueprints that are effective and are time-tested. So, hope that, that answers your question and provides some insight.
1: So my name is Laurie Castine, um, and as uh, I was introduced, I've been here about 20 years, um, and hopefully, we'll provide you a little bit of information about some of the new things we're doing in student life. And, and at the end, when we take questions, we're happy to answer questions about really any aspect of student life, not just the things we're addressing now. We, we tried to sort of pare this down to a few specific areas we thought might be of interest to you. Um, we serve all undergraduate, graduate, and professional students at the university, um, both in our safety and, and response work, but also in our outreach work. But I wanted to focus today on a few traditionally underrepresented or underserved populations, just because we're doing some really interesting things. Um, and our, uh, the grounds uh, are increasingly diverse in wonderful ways with students who bring uh, a real uh, depth of backgrounds Uh, whether it's uh, socioeconomic difference, racial or ethnic difference, um, just other aspects of their background. So we're trying to do a lot to make sure that all students have access to the same experience, the same opportunities uh, while they're here. So I wanted to touch on a few of those things, Um, focusing on the new Multicultural Center, um, our expanded LGBTQ Center, um, Access UVA, which is our financial aid program, and first-generation students with whom I work very, very closely student veterans, and just very briefly, a few resources for transfer students, just to give you a little window into a few things. Uh, Marsh touched on the Multicultural Center, which will be housed in Newcomb Hall on the lower level. Um, We have been providing support and resources for students of diverse backgrounds for a very, very long time um, in partnership with the Office of African American Affairs, which is a... a, um, Uh, stands on its own as its own organization within the the Office of the Vice President for Student Affairs. We collaborate very closely with them. We've been providing uh, outreach and support in similar ways to multiple other diverse populations. However, the Multicultural Center is a nice opportunity to really think cross-culturally and multiculturally. Students have many identities, um, and we want to make sure that we're looking at ways in which organizations, groups, students, people interact across um, some of those boundaries and some of those population differences, and so the multicultural center uh, was entirely student driven initiative it 's something we 'd been thinking about at the university for some time but as as you know as as alumni of this university. We really uh, work from the, from the ground up in terms of what students need, what students are asking for. We try not to deliver things to them and hope that they'll use them. We want to know what students want. Um, and the students really formed a very diverse working group um, of students from all backgrounds to look at what that might look like. If we were to bring all of these professionals who do this work individually together and think about it in a more cross-cultural way, what might that look like? Um, They did a great deal of research, again, all independently. Some of the staff that worked for me were assisting them in sort of a mentorship way, but the students drove the entire initiative in doing research at other institutions to see what other people were doing, what are the best practices nationally, uh, what what are some programming ideas and directions they might like to see. They held focus groups, they met with stakeholders on grounds, everyone from the Office of African American Affairs, to Disability Access Services, to the Women's Center, to a whole host of of groups uh, who would care about what goes on in this center, and um, made a proposal. And and in in collaboration with our office, and with Marsh and his team, and really looking at the facility space, uh, and with the Dean of Students, it, it is coming to fruition this fall. And we're very, very excited about it, and the students are thrilled. Um, It's going to be a safe space first and foremost for students of all backgrounds uh, together and that includes students who identify as uh, the majority uh, within any given population as well as students uh, from diverse backgrounds. It's intended to be a place for all. It will be meeting space, it will be programmatic space, our uh, multicultural program staff will be housed in that space to to foster programming and and cross-cultural interaction. Uh, A lot of the programs that are currently happening individually will continue to happen, but there'll be other opportunities to do that more collaboratively. We have a a host of peer mentoring programs, which are fantastic within multiple populations. Uh, We have leadership development programs, identity development programs, a lot of educational activities, you know, film screenings, lectures, panels on critical issues, thinking about, for example, immigration, the national election, what are some of the stakes, uh, some of the, the key issues for different populations, and, and, and discussing those in an intellectual way. And so we really think that this center and this opportunity for students to engage um, directly with one another on a lot of these topics will be a really positive addition to the environment. One of the things that we focus on in our peer mentoring programs and other services for multicultural um, students is Finding that safe space, that home, that connection to, to individuals with whom they share a background, but then also finding that comfort level to engage broadly in the university. So it's really about launching students into whatever it is they want to do with the university, academically, extracurricularly, athletically, artistically. So it's not sort of pulling people in and keeping them there. It's pulling them in and having them have a safe place, but also saying, now what? What's next for you? What do you want to do to take advantage of of this entire place? And so the staff will be doing a lot of that as they, as they currently do. So we're, we're thrilled about that opportunity. It's also a center of advocacy as well, not activism, but advocacy to ensure that the voices of all students are heard in everything that we do at this institution. The Multicultural Center will be located immediately adjacent to the LGBTQ Center. Um, For those of you less familiar with that acronym, it's Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, Queer, and Questioning Center. Um, We have had a center for more than a decade at this point um, at the university. It was housed um, on the fourth floor of Newcomb Hall for many years. Um, Three years ago, it was located to the lower level of Newcomb Hall, which gives it a much larger space. Uh, greater opportunity for programming and meeting and student organizations to be there. And it will be ha- uh, immediately adjacent to the Multicultural Center for, again, ad- increased collaboration, which is already occurring among the staff members, but really bringing those students together. Um, the LGBTQ Center it has a rich slate of programs and resources. First and foremost, it is a safe space. Um, A lot of health information. They have a a big staff of student interns who each have areas of focus, Um, in particular the health intern, uh, undergraduate health intern. um, shepherds an enormous number of programs focused on mental health issues, focused on physical health, on body issues, on uh, on mental health. Really just terrific programming that she offers. Uh, Education, celebration, and awareness um, of different populations, different backgrounds as well as confidential advising and referrals. So students who are questioning, students who are seeking support and resources have access to the center director, who is Scott Reinheimer, who's been with us for three years and does a fabulous job of supporting students wherever they are uh, on their spectrum of of identity development. Uh, And so we think that's a really terrific uh, collaborative organization with the Multicultural Center. We're really thrilled that it has thrived so much in the last decade and in these last three years in this larger space. So we're really pleased about that opportunity. Uh, One population that is very near and dear to my heart um, is our Access UVA and first-generation student population. There's not complete overlap, but there certainly is some. So as I said, Access UVA is our financial aid program, um, and this is um, a program that I work closely with from the Office of the Dean of Students, supporting students um, as they adjust to the university with fewer financial means. And again, there's a significant overlap with first-generation students. What we try to do, or what I try to do in my work with these students uh, who are coming to the university in increasing numbers, which is fantastic, is to ensure that they have access to the same college experience as any peer of theirs who may come with greater financial means, greater financial resources. We don't want students to um, self-select out of opportunities like undergraduate research, like study abroad, um, all of these kinds of activities that can require additional funds, student activities that might have larger fees associated with them. and so. Uh, That is one of my goals. The other is to help students develop um, and recognize the social and cultural capital that they do have that they very often don't perceive that they have in relationship to their peers who maybe have larger social networks or their families have networks beyond uh, those of some of their peers. And so we focus a lot on that. And the way that I do that with students is starting when they first come in their first year, in the summer before they come, reaching out to students who fall in a particular uh, income or need category as well as first-generation status, introducing myself to them. What we know through the research is that first-generation students, as well as low-income students, are more more likely to persist in college if they have a person. And that person might ultimately be a faculty mentor who they just adore. It might be an older student that they connect to. It might be an admission counselor that they met on the way in. It could be a career service uh, professional that they've worked with, anyone. But if they have someone who knows who they are, who cares about their experience and that they can go to really for anything, even if that anything is a referral, they are more likely to persist. The other thing research shows us is that first-generation and low-income students are less likely to access university resources, whether that's career resources or advising resources, without a little bit of a nudge. And so those are some of the things that I try to do, is to be that person for them while they find who that person ultimately is going to be. To be someone that they can latch on to when they first get here, who knows who they are, who knows what their story is, and can refer them to the things that they need um, and help them find those mentors while they're here. Um, And to be the person to nudge them, to take advantage of all of those university resources and opportunities that are available to them just like they are to everyone else. Additionally, uh, as I said, I focus very heavily on engaging them in whatever aspects of student life are interesting to them, um, encouraging them that those, those opportunities are open to them, keeping in mind that a lot of the students in this population didn't have those opportunities in high school, either because their communities or schools didn't offer them or because they had competing demands in terms of assisting with, with their families, working multiple jobs. And so this may be the first time that some of those students have the opportunity to, to do things outside of, their, of the classroom and really engage in broader ways. And so that's a, that's a huge focus for me. Um, We do a lot of targeted workshops for first and second year students on some of those technical areas as well as university engagement areas. Um, I do workshops on budgeting workshops on balancing work and school, holding a job while you're in school, um, workshops on study abroad and how do you afford it and how does your financial aid actually apply usually to your study abroad opportunity. Many students think they can't study abroad when in fact their financial aid often translates almost very directly to the cost of study abroad and that's a, that's a shock for a lot of students coming from low income backgrounds. Um, we do a session on um, undergraduate research, how to find funded research in any discipline, whether they're pre-med, whether they're in the humanities or the social sciences, how do they seek those opportunities to enhance their education and potentially be paid for it at the same time and really developing those job skills. So we do workshops on that as well. Um, and a few other technical ones in the spring, FAFSA, the, the, the Federal uh, Application for for Financial aid. That's a confusing federal document, like just like your taxes. You, every time you look at them you think, "There's a new, there's a new field, and what in the heck are they asking that for? What does it mean?" So we do. We walk them through field by field of the FAFSA, and we also do some tax preparation workshops, recognizing that some of our students, some of our first generation students, uh, first generation college students, are in fact doing the taxes for their family or are participating heavily in that. Um, we also do uh, workshops for third and fourth year students. This last, these last two years I had a grant funded program that I did for fourth years and I'm actually gonna transition it to third years. Again, focusing on that social and cultural capital development, helping students recognize that their education, their preparedness, their intellect is exactly the same as that of their better-resourced financial um, peers, but really developing that confidence. And we do that through focused career workshops, through some stress management workshops, through um, uh, personal statement workshops associated with graduate school or, or jobs, interviewing skills, uh, mock interviewing, things like that. So we try to sort of supplement some of what they get through the career center in smaller environments where they. Feel feel comfortable with one another, they know that the folks around them have some of the same insecurities that they have with respect to those opportunities. Um, So that's another aspect of of what I do with those students. So we really uh, are thrilled to have such a diverse population at the university and to have increasing numbers of students from difficult financial backgrounds. And they graduate an extraordinarily high level, just like our students from, from more financial means, and they inc- thrive here like you would not believe. It's a real joy for me to see a student come in a little bit insecure, worried about their background, in some cases worried about their accent, worried about their clothes, worried about some of those things that these students think a lot about, and then see them study abroad twice and undertake funded research. and end up with incredible jobs and graduate school opportunities and for them to recognize that they could have done that all along, but they didn't necessarily have that confidence coming in. And so just providing that additional support so that they recognize what it is that they contribute to this community and what opportunities they have. So that's, a, that's another population that, that we focus very heavily on. Um, in terms of veteran students, our veteran numbers are not terribly high. We have significant numbers of veterans in our professional schools. The Darden School of Business, the Medical School, and the Law School have significant um, of veteran populations, as you would imagine, as well as active duty, particularly in the law school with our affiliation to the JAG school. And those graduate programs really provide a lot of terrific resources on-site in those communities, which are somewhat sort of geographically separate from our central grounds. So I tend to focus on graduate students in the graduate schools that are on central grounds as well as undergraduates. And again, there are fewer of those, um, but we are, sort of so our services are sort of nascent. A lot of that is one-on-one, and a lot of... Um, newsletter kind of outreach focusing on veteran and active duty resources in the community of which they may not be aware, as well as opportunities on grounds. There's a student organization that formed uh, for student veterans. We do some liaising with the community college where most of our veterans come from after they return from service. So that's a, that's a building program that we're working on. We care very deeply about the experience of student veterans and are hoping as more and more soldiers are returning to see more. Um, most of them, as you would imagine, in Virginia, either find themselves in Northern Virginia or in the Tidewater area just because of the, the proximity to military installments. But we're hoping to see more at the University of Virginia. They're very, very successful here and bring a lot to our community. In terms of transfer students, we have worked for many years with transfer students. The Office of Orientation and New Student Programs does a lot of work with them. They have transfer student peer advisors who are older students who transferred in themselves, who shepherd some of that process. We have, uh, in the last several years ago, we developed a transfer student housing uh, area, which sort of puts them in the same area with returning upper-class students so that they're not isolated, so they have those sort of those peers who've, who've been there and done that since their first year, but to give them some critical mass. Um, this year that's going to be moving to Lambeth for some of you. Anybody live in Lambeth your second year while you were here? A few of you? A couple nods. Um, so we're moving that to the Lambeth area, which we know is a very, very popular second year area, and we want those students to engage fully in the community and not feel isolated. So we've done a lot to support transfers. And this coming, beginning this summer, a colleague of ours, uh, Aaron Loshway, a fellow associate dean, is going to be moving to our housing and residence life area to really focus on transfer students. It's Nationally they're a challenging population because they have such diverse needs coming from incredibly diverse backgrounds, some of them coming from four years, some coming from community colleges, some older, some younger. Um, some have friends here from high school, some don't. They just Their needs are different. Um, and so he's really going to try to get a handle on some ways that we can better assist our transfer students. We accept about 600 transfer students per year, which is a pretty large number, we really want to make sure that they feel a part of this community and that they own this community in the way that students who started here did. So that's a, the sort of quick and dirty, and I realize I speak quickly, so hopefully I, that you didn't lose me there, on a few specific populations I wanted to address. I'm going to transition um, to safety a little bit because I think some of you may have some some interest in that area and it's something that is central to our office and to our division, really to the university, but our division and our office specifically holds a lot of responsibility in those areas. Um, I have the pleasure now of running our on-call and crisis system of which Marsh and I are both a part. It is central to what we do, uh, so I'll talk a little bit about that as well as a few interesting initiatives in that area. I'm not going to get down in the weeds, but we're happy to answer any questions that you may have. we do have in our office, as I said, a system that I run, which is our on-call system, which is 365 days a year, 24-7. We have one of our deans. Uh, we are on-call nights and weekends, uh, every single night of the week, every every weekend. And during the day, our central office manages everything that comes in. So there are five or six of us who do everything that comes in the door during the day. But there's always someone on call to support students in crisis, whether that's an injury or a mental health crisis or a, f- a family crisis that is affecting them, really anything we can do to be of support. We work closely with our university police and with our colleagues in the Counseling Center and our academic colleagues to support students because any of these crises that occur obviously have ramifications in their academic realm. We also have a threat assessment team for the university, um, which is focused primarily on um, threats to individuals at the university. by somebody at the university or by an external source. Um, That covers both students and staff and faculty. As you can imagine, with a a large institution and a very large hospital, um, that there are certainly prospective concerns from any number of areas. We certainly have estranged spouses and other kinds of situations in the medical center from time to time given the large, uh, the large number of staff there. So the threat assessment team um, is something that our state law allows us to do, allows us to bring to bear a lot of information from police and counseling centers, which normally would be confidential, but within that confidential setting we can bring that information in to better understand a prospective risk where we have that information. So it involves folks from the police, from the counseling areas, from the hospital, from human resources. Um, legal counsel, student affairs, and so we will gather each week and discuss anything that may potentially present a risk to any individual within our community um, and figure out how best to mitigate that risk, how to put safety, safety uh, parameters in place for a given situation. So we feel really good about our safety infrastructure. There are a lot of people focused every day on this. It's a safe area, it's a safe community, but like any community, there are always things that we need to be mindful of uh, and prepared for. Well, let's see. So a few recent things that I wanted to mention that I don't think I have up here yet. We have a new public safety substation. Have any of you seen that on the corner? Have you walked down there? We think that's a terrific collaboration between the university and the community. Um, it is the home to the ambassador so maybe I'll switch and talk about the ambassadors first and then come back to the substation. The ambassadors are not university police, they're not university safety officers, but they are trained by the police and have an affiliation with our university police. You may have seen them, they're in bright sort of greenish-yellow jackets and vests and things. They are Pretty much everywhere they need to be, they're all over the corner. They're in the 14, 14th Street, Wartland Street area. Um, they are up West Main Street. They are in the Rugby Road area. Really, all of the areas that our students live tend to live in <clears throat> excuse me, in large numbers and frequent um, for social activities or academic activities. And I'm sorry. Are they, they are not, not. correct. In in I'm sorry. So they are employed by the university. They are trained by the university police. They do not carry weapons. They are not law enforcement. They are intended to be another set of eyes and ears or many eyes and ears on grounds. Somebody, uh, given their their uniform and their, and their um, visibility standing on the street and on bicycles, things of that nature, that a student can approach if a student is worried about their own safety, concerned about something they've seen that looks unsafe says, I don't have a phone, I need to call a cab, I need to get home, um, somebody who's impaired, they can contact emergency services, they can contact police if they see something or a student raises a concern. So they are sort of the eyes and ears and a safe person and safe place to reach out to law enforcement or just to safety um, through ambulances and fire, etc. cetera. Um, we found it to be very, very successful. I think students really like having a visible presence of other people who aren't police. Our police are very, very visible and, and friendly and do a lot of community policing on the corner. But we think this is another really good Resource for our students and for members of the community who frequent the corner. This is this is something that's intended to serve anyone in those areas and increase uh, safety. So the ambassadors work out of that public. Um, safety substation they again they have bicycles and all their equipment in there and they log all of their activities there and they're the maps of where they travel they've got a pretty wide area that they serve again primarily where our students live and travel um, and so we think that's a really positive addition the substation opened this past year this, this past academic year I think early in the fall I believe is when that first came open um, our University Police and Charlottesville Police can frequent that as well sometimes they'll go in there for a quick break or check in and see what's going on what what people are seeing and hearing on the street so we're really really pleased about that collaboration. As I mentioned, community policing, our university police work very collaboratively, particularly with the city, but also with the county. As as Marsh mentioned, we kind of straddle multiple jurisdictions. um, And they have joint patrol, an official joint patrol agreement in the Rugby Road area, um, in the corner area, and some of those areas uh, sort of behind the corner that are frequented primarily or lived in primarily by students, and that allows them both to serve the students in those areas to ensure safety, high visibility particularly on the weekends for students in need. And certainly while students from time to time do get arrested, their primary focus is safety. They're they're routinely um, finding students who are impaired and seeking medical services for them. The goal is to have them be safe um, and to receive the treatment that they need. If a student is sort of beyond the pale in some situations, uh, certainly an arrest will happen, but their goal is to be Engage with the community, they do walking patrols on the corner to get to know students to be a visible presence, and I think they're a really positive presence. Students report feeling much more comfortable seeing uh, law enforcement and the ambassadors on the corner. Um, we have a number of safety committees that are student and employee run, and they are terrific. They receive concerns from people about lighting or about other kinds of um, safety hazards, and then they go and investigate that, figure out what's needed to increase the safety in a given area. They're very, very responsive, and, and the student participation in that is important. Um, We also have a lot of prevention efforts, as Marsh mentioned. We have a program coordinator for prevention, and she's focused very heavily on sexual violence prevention and on new member activities, as Marsh mentioned. So she'll be collaborating with clubs, athletics, Greek letter organizations, individual students. Um, We have a lot of student organizations focused on sexual violence prevention and education. She's a great resource to them, and they're working very closely together, really thinking about... um, Trying to focus our education on on the specifics, on the policy as well, and on consent, of course, but really more on healthy relationships, rights and responsibilities of individuals, opportunities to have a really safe and positive experience here. So really looking in a proactive way about healthy relationships, collaborating with students and uh, student health and a lot of other organizations, so we feel really good about a lot of the work that she's doing. We, have the, we are affiliated with the Green Dot program. Some of you may be familiar with it. It's a national program that's really focused on bystander intervention that if you, any individual can contribute in some way if they see something that looks like it's maybe headed down a path that's not safe, saying something, doing something, and there's a whole structured curriculum about how to, how to be somebody who's active in your, in your community and your environment looking out for one another. And that ties in with our larger university bystander program, Who's Got Your Back? And we work with our corner merchants as well to make sure that they and the bars and restaurants are keeping an eye out as well when they 're seeing interactions between students and community members that that may seem like they 're headed down a path that 's not safe that they are going to say something and act in a way that can can prevent some some negative outcomes so that's a quick and dirty overview of safety, but I just want you to know there's a lot going on. There are a lot of people thinking about it, um, and we feel really good about our collaborations with our, with our colleagues and community stakeholders and, first and foremost, with our students. So we've given you a few little topics here and there, but we're more than happy to take any questions, um, comments, concerns that you may have, and um, hopefully we can... Yes, sir? So with uh, all the programs, we I'm sorry, could you
0: wait? They want up. to get you on the get you on the on the recording uh, with all the programs uh, focusing on helping the students, uh, what are the best practices in terms of uh, orientation uh, enlightenment for faculty and staff to also support your mission there
1: that's a great question um, so sort of two, two sets of stakeholders. One you didn't mention, which is parents. So orientation have a very robust orientation for parents to make sure that they're aware of these resources and, and ways in which we can work with them and supporting their students. Um, for faculty and staff, it's a combination of, of Orientation run through human resources and particularly for faculty, there's a much more robust faculty orient new faculty orientation, which includes all of the technical pieces they need associated with their research and and everything to do with their teaching. But it also includes a lot of information about supporting students, Um, being tuned to concerns about mental health, which and faculty are great partners for us because they're the first people to see this very often because they're in the class every day and they notice those differences in student behavior, student performance, student attendance. Um, So we have our um, I usually Presented the new faculty orientation, we bring our, our director of counseling services, our Title IX office, to say, here are all these things you need to be thinking about. It's not your job to fix them or to manage them, but here are the people, here's who you can refer to, to make sure that those students receive the, the support that they need. Um, we found faculty to be very, very responsive in that way. And so they're, they're very heavily trained, um, and, but the good news is they're doing a lot of really good work with that training, um, and they, we get calls all the time from faculty saying, this may be nothing, but I'm just a little concerned. And, and very often it is something, and we're thrilled to be able to, to intervene early and support that student, let the faculty member go back to focusing on his or her classroom and, and do our work to support the student.
0: And there's also that um, in terms of specific areas like sexual misconduct, there, there are modules, I don't know if you mentioned those, but there, there are online modules that they will take as well. They're pushed out that every university employee is required to do, which includes what to do when you, you something is told to you or you see something, you're concerned about something and where to refer students and so on. So there's a, there's a lot of robust training around that.
1: to you with the
0: microphone. Thank you. Uh, my question is more, of, is more specific about the subject of safety. A year and a half ago, we lost a, appeared to me, to be an outstanding young lady, had a gram. Uh, what have we done? to She was traveling 130 in the morning by herself, which no girl, I would hope my granddaughter wouldn't be doing. What is being done to try to prevent that from rehappening?
1: That's a a great question. Um, You know, a lot of the same things we've been doing for years and even more. Um, One of the things we find most effective in that area is really talking to students one-on-one and in groups about safety. Students get lulled into this idea, as do we as, as adults. We get lulled in this idea. It's a community we're familiar with. We think, well, it'll be fine. I'm just going from here to here. It's just this once. Um, But we do still see students doing that. It's men and women both that we are concerned about. Um, We do a lot of education on that during orientation and throughout the year. We have uh, regular notices to students about crime that's occurring in the area, which again includes all of those best practices. Every time we notify them about a crime, we say, remember, these are your resources. We're very focused on late-night busing um, so that students have easy ways to get home. We've got partnerships with cab companies, so if they don't have money on them, they can take a cab, they can hail a yellow cab and get it home and pay for it later through the Dean of Students Office. We're trying to make it as easy as possible for a student to have a safe ride home. We also focus on walking together. Student council has had initiatives for um, partner walks. certainly working with, with our local um, merchants, as I said, through the Who's Got Your Back and trying to address some of those issues. It's an ongoing battle. With, with every near, new class of students, we're consistently giving that message and consistently having those conversations. But it, it is challenging. As I said, the ambassadors are another really helpful piece, we think, because if a student is walking alone, an ambassador can say, hey, excuse me, you know, maybe, can we call you a cab? Um, did you know that there's a, the bus is running soon? Those kinds of things. So we hope that those, those additional eyes and ears will be really helpful, as well as our, um, our patrols. But it, it is a challenge. It's definitely a challenge, and I certainly appreciate you raising that concern.
0: And, and just the, to emphasize on something that Lori has said too, like <clears throat> there is never a circumstance, never a circumstance where a student has to walk by themselves from point A to point B on grounds. There's always, always an opportunity either to call somebody, to get a cab, to take the safe ride van, or to utilize one of the university's buses. And so we we drive that home during orientation and during reminders. You know, there there. Are, kind of what, what are called timely warnings that go out when something happens that remind students about the resources they have available. But we remind students you don't, you don't have to and you should not be walking by yourself, uh, at, particularly uh, at night. There is always an opportunity for you to get safe transportation.
1: Hi, um, I'm Rosanna Bincoach College 81. I'm also the new voter registrar for the city of Charlottesville. And I'm interested in, besides the university pushing messages out, what methods of communication the students use now? What can you use to get information out, of, out to them? In my day, it was an ad in the Cavalier Daily, but there are almost no classifieds in the CD anymore.
0: Sure. So the question is around methods of communication. So, and I, I kind of touched on this very briefly before, but if um, there's something called timely warnings that, that go out. If, if there has been a crime that's happened um, on or near grounds, and, and it meets a certain federal definition of a, uh, under the Clery Act uh, of a specific type of crime in a specific location and so on, when that triggers um, that threshold, there is a message that goes out to the entire university community that advises them that this has happened, that this, is, that this crime has happened, or this alleged crime has happened. Uh, and it usually also provides information about resources, reminding people how to to be safe, to be aware of their surroundings, the emergency contact numbers, the resources for for transportation, and so on so that is done through email that is an email notification that goes out. Uh, the university also makes extensive use of social media these days, uh, Twitter. Uh, texting, um, Facebook, and so on. Now, the university does have a um, essentially an emergency alert system um, that students are able to uh, sign up for, and we remind students about that during orientation when they come in. So these are text alerts that the university uses. It's, it's employed by our Office of Emergency Preparedness. Um, so, if there is an, an, um, an emergency happening on grounds, uh, or an imminent emergency, say like it's a weather-related situation, um, and information needs to be communicated immediately and quickly to, not just to students, but to everybody in the university community, faculty, staff, as well. Um, this tech system is notified, so people are, tech system is used, so people are able to get information in real time. That tends to be our, our biggest form of, uh, most effective form of communication. Additional uh, methods as well, um, there are, um, if you see back there, there's a, a, a sort of a board that shows the time and the date. Um, all classrooms, or nearly all classrooms on grounds, have electronic screens like that, that if there were an active emergency in progress, Information is communicated on those screens, as well as LCD screens located throughout the university. So we—they're all connected to a central source where emergency information can be communicated out very quickly. So if something was happening, and you know, we're the professor at the front of the classroom, we can see something—something something happening. How?
1: Question was about out, how outside organizations okay. get information. It used to be through classified ads in the Cavalier Daily, but how those are barely exist anymore.
0: How you so if you're trying to advertise something to For students?
1: For example, the deadline to register to vote is
0: right. So. There are, well you can use the Cavalier Daily, I mean the students certainly still still read the Cavalier Daily, that's a possibility. They're also posting opportunities around grounds um, within Newcomb Hall as well as a number of boards around grounds. A lot of local merchants and local organizations will use those as well. Um, using student organizations, so that's another mechanism that, that can be utilized again, approaching 700 student organizations, a lot of them have interest in voter registration, uh, voting drives, and so on, um, particularly a lot of our organizations that have political affiliations, and there are many, many, many such organizations. Good. That really is likely your most effective method because, as we know, students listen to students um, first and foremost. So if peers are driving and pushing a lot of this, you're able to communicate information through them. So that, in my experience, that tends to be the most effective method of of reaching out and engaging the community. Now, the university as a rule doesn't allow, um, except in specific circumstances, sales and solicitation on grounds, and that's, that's driven to protect students in, in the, the and the integrity of the academic environment and so on. So when individuals ask us those questions, we remind them about the physical spaces on grounds that they can use to post, but also, again, work with those student organizations because they really have a lot of reach and, and, and ends with a lot of organizations around grounds. That's your best method.
1: I'm sure you all are very familiar with a recent documentary called The Hunting Ground, about assaults on campus, results of assaults on campus. Uh, Would you uh, comment on that, its veracity, and specifically with the little stats they gave on what's happened at UVA over the past 10 years or some number like that? I can't. I don't recall the specific stats that they have. Certainly, we can't comment on any specific cases that may have been included or, or referenced in that movie. Um, I can tell you that, and this is going to sound like a pat answer, but it's an accurate one, which is that the concerns that we have here are no different than other institutions. Um, I can tell you what the differences are among institutions are the ways in which we address those issues when they arise, the way we attempt to prevent, and the way we work with our students to communicate information and create a, a different culture here. Um, so you know, certainly any of those films are troubling for sure because they're not they're not based on fiction, um, but they're also not always 100% accurate in terms of specifics. So again, I can't speak to the specific cases that may have been referenced there, uh, but I can say it's something we're very, very focused on. Certainly last year was horrific in many ways, not only because of the loss of a, of a student, actually several students that year due to a number of reasons, um, but also the, the, the Rolling Stone situation, and regardless of the veracity or lack of veracity of that story, and that's to each his own to assess that, one silver lining, I would say, is a very tough silver lining, but a one silver lining of that is that it got a lot of people who hadn't been talking about these concerns talking about them. So many of us have been talking about it till we're blue in the face for years and years and years. But it did engage a lot of students um, from all walks of of life on grounds in talking about that publicly with one another, with us, engaging more actively in some of the prevention efforts that we have. And so while it was a horrific year for our students and for everyone who works here and for the community, quite frankly, um, I do think there is an increased um, motivation among the students to really address this as a community and to change the the culture of college communities, not just this one, but college communities in terms of those kinds of issues and mutual respect and, and safety and, and uh, eradicating sexual violence so While I realize that 's a sort of somewhat uh, around the the band response to your question, I think that 's sort of the larger issue that we 're focused on is making sure that that culture shift does take place, and we 're only one part of the, the college world in the United States that we 're really trying to make a difference here that we hope we 'll see elsewhere. Yeah, a, very quick, a very quick one. Okay. I'm very impressed with what you're doing. I think uh, we've come an awful long way. I am both a, an alum and uh, a townie. I live on Alderman Road, so I see a lot of students who go between the dorms and all the athletic facilities. and. Uh, back and forth on Alderman at all times of night by themselves. The lighting on Alderman Road is awful. So I just want to put in a plug. I know they've done an awful good job on Emmett Street of putting new lighting in in different places. But I worry for the safety of a lot of them. And these are first-year students, a lot of them, that go back and forth on Alderman Road. And I just put in that plug. I appreciate that. And obviously that is, that is uh, city property, but I'd be happy to raise that with the safety committee so that they can initiate that conversation with the city and figure out what possible improvements can be made there. But thank you for raising that. Thank you. And before we have a final show of...